Arthur Pink Spiritual Growth, uh, we're on 16 or 17. And we're discussing uh, spiritual growth, it's recovery. Uh, we, we began it and we're going to continue. There are degrees of backsliding. <clears throat> in the case of a real child of God, it always commences in the heart's departure from Him. And where that be protracted, evidences thereof shall soon appear in the daily walk. Once a Christian becomes a backslider outwardly, he has lost his distinguishing character. For then there is little or no, nothing to distinguish him from a religious worldling. Backsliding always presupposes a profession of faith and adherence unto Christ, though not necessarily the existence or reality of the thing professed. An unregenerate professor may be sincere, though deluded, and he may, from various considerations, be perverse in his profession to the very end. But more frequently, he soon wearies of it, and after the novelty has worn off or the demands made upon him become more intolerable, he abandons his profession. <clears throat> and like the sow returns to his wallowing in the mire. That, that's been my personal experience of, of knowing people who backslid and left the faith. They, they almost always leave the faith, especially people who commit adultery and leave their spouses. They just give up on it. Such as the apostate, and with very rare exceptions, if indeed there be any, his apostasy is total and final. Up to the beginning of this chapter, we have confined ourselves to the spiritual life of the regenerate. We have now reached the stage where faithfulness to souls requires us to enlarge our scope. Under the last division, we dwelt upon spiritual decline, its nature, its causes, its insidiousness, and its symptoms. It is pertinent, therefore, to inquire now, what will be the sequel to such a decline? <clears throat> a general answer cannot be returned, for the decline varies considerably in different cases, some being less and some more, acute and extended than others the outcome not always being the same. Where the relapse of the Christian be marked, if not to himself, yet to onlookers, he has entered the class of backsliders, and that will cause the spiritual to stand in doubt of him. It is this consideration which requires us to enlarge the class to which we now address our remarks. Otherwise, unregenerate professors who have deteriorated in their religious life would be likely to derive false comfort from that which applies only to those who have been temporarily despoiled by Satan. Unless spiritual decline be arrested, it will not remain stationary, but become worse. And the worse it becomes, the less are we justified in regarding it as a spiritual decline. And the more does the scripture require us to view it as the exposure of a worthless profession. Hence, it is that any degree of spiritual deterioration is to be regarded uh, not complacently, but as something serious, and if not promptly corrected, is highly dangerous in its tendency. But Satan will attempt to persuade the Christian that though his zeal has abated somewhat and his spiritual affections cooled, there is nothing for him to worry about. That even if his health has begun to decline, yet seeing he has not fallen to any, any great sin, his condition is not all that serious. But every decay is dangerous, especially such as the mind is ready to excuse and plead for a continu continuance therein. Okay, that's where things really get bad. You, you notice people, when they, they fall into sin and... Uh, there's a person who knows he's fallen into sin and he's miserable. And then there's a the person who falls into sin and makes excuses for it and basically says, ah, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. And those are the people that you really wonder, you know, are they really saved? <clears throat> the nature and deadly tendency of sin is the same in itself, whether it be in the unregenerate or the regenerate person. And if it be not resisted and mortified, repented of and forsaken, the outcome will be the same. James 1, 15 and 16, When lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. And he could have also quoted the passage in Romans about uh, those who give into the lust of the flesh, uh, 
it's almost identical in Rome in, in I think it's Romans eight. Three stages of spiritual decline are solemnly set before us in Revelation two and three. First of the Ephesian backslider Christ says, I have against thee because thou hast left thy first love, two four. That is a more striking and searching because there was much here that the Lord commended. I know but thy works and thy labor and thy patience. And for my name's sake has lit thus labored and is not fainted. Yet he adds, nevertheless I have this against thee. In this case, things still were uh, all right in the external life, but there was an inward decay. Observe well this divine indictment. I have against thee, uh, because thou hast left thy first love, is an unmistakably plain intimation that Christians are held accountable for the state of their love Godwards. There are some who do seem to conclude that those words of love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto them, Romans 5.5, 5, that they have no personal responsibility in connection therewith, and who attribute to the sovereignty of God their coldness of heart, rather than blaming themselves for the waning of their affections. <clears throat> but that is highly reprehensible, being an adding of insult to injury. It is such the duty of a saint to maintain a warm and constant affection to Christ, as if to preserve his faith in regular exercise. And he is no more warranted in excusing his failure in the one than in the other. We are expressly bidden, keep yourselves in the love of God, Jude, and set your affections on things above, Colossians 1, 3, 1. And it is a horrible perversion and abuse of the blessed truth if I attribute my not doing unto God sovereign withholding from me the inclination. <clears throat> my not doing so to blame it on God's sovereign withholding from me the inclination. Those words of Christ, I have this against thee, is the language of censure because of failure. And certainly had not used it unless he was to blame. Observe, he does not merely say, thou hast lost thy for love, it is so frequently misquoted. Man even tones down what is unpalatable. No, thou hast left thy first love. Something more serious and heinous. One may lose a thing involuntarily, but to leave it, uh, but to leave it is deliberate action. Finally, let us duly note that our Lord regarded the departure not as an innocent infirmity, but as a culpable sin, for he says, Repent! In his faithful servant on Revelation 2.4, C.H. Spurgeon pointed out that we ought to feel ashamed, I mean, we ought to feel alarmed if we have left our first love and asked the question, was I ever a child of God at all? Go on to say, oh my God, I must ask myself this question. Yes, I will. And there, not many of whom it is said, they went out from, from us because they were not of us. Are there not some whose goodness is as a morning cloud and as the early dew? May that not have been my cause, my case? I am speaking for you all. Put the question, may I not have been impressed under a certain sermon? And may not that impression have been a more, mere carnal excitement? May it not have been that I thought I repented, but I did not really repent? <laughs> may it not have been the case that I, I got a hope of something, but had not a right to it, and never had the loving faith that unites me to the Lamb of God? And may it not have been that I only thought I had love to Christ and never had it? For if I really had love to Christ, should I be as I am, as I now am? See how far I have come down. May I not keep on going down until my end shall be perdition and the fire unquenchable? Many have gone from the heights of profession to the depths of damnation. And may I not be, be the same? Let me think. If I go on as I am, it is impossible for me to stop. If I am going downwards, I may go on doing so. And, oh my God, if I go on backsliding for another year, who knows where I may have backslidden to? Perhaps into some gross sin. Prevent, prevent it by thy grace. 
Perhaps I may backslide totally. If I am a child of God, I know I cannot do that. But still, may it not happen that I only thought I was a child of God. <clears throat> I think that was the quote of Spurgeon. Searching, as is the complaint of Christ to the Ephesian backsliders, backslider, his word to the Sardinian is yet more drastic. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Revelation 3.1. That does not signify that he, that he was here addressing an unregenerate person, but rather one whose conduct belied his name. His life did not correspond with his profession. He had a reputation for piety, and there was no longer evidence to justify it, no fruit to warrant it any longer. Not only had there been deterioration within, but also without. The salt had lost its savor. The fine gold had become dim, and hence his profession brought no honor and glory to Christ. He bids him be watchful. For that was the very point at which he had failed. And strengthen the things which remain. Thou art ready to die, which shows thou art dead. A verse 1 does not mean dead in sins. For I have not found my works perfect before God, nor complete or full. Good works were not totally abandoned, and many of them were lacking. Part of his duty was listlessly performed, and the other part neglected. And even the former was ready to die. Thus, it will be seen that the case of the Sardinian backslider is much worse than that of the Ephesian. There is no remaining stationary in Christianity. If we do not advance, we retrograde. If we are not fruit-bearing branches of the vine, we become cumberers of the ground. Decay of grace is not a thing to be regarded lightly and treated with indifference. If it is not attended to and corrected, our condition will grow worse. If we do not return to our first love by heeding the injunctions laid down in Revelation 2.5, then we can expect to become like the Sardinian backslider, one whose witness to Christ is marred. Unless our hearts are kept right, our affection to Christ uh, warm, then the life will soon deteriorate. Our works will be defective, be deficient both to quality and quantity, and those around us will perceive it. Ere long, a name to live is all we shall have. The profession itself will be invalid, worthless, dead. But worst of all is the Laodicean professor, three, Revelation 3, 15 to 20. What makes his case so fearfully solemn is that we are at a loss where to place him, how to classify him, whether he is a real Christian who has fearfully backslidden or not, but an empty professor. To him, Christ says, thou art neither hot nor cold, neither one thing or the other, but rather an unholy mixture. Such are those who vainly attempt to serve two masters who are worshippers of God the one day and worshippers of mammon the the other six. Damn Christ goes on to say, worth if thou are hot or cold, cold or hot, that is either open and about enemy or a faithful and consistent witness for me. Be one thing or the other, a foe or a friend, an utter worldling or one who is in spirit and in truth a stranger and a pilgrim in this scene. Corrupt Christianity is more offensive to Christ than is open fidelity. If he who bears this name does not depart from iniquity, his honor is affected. Because thou art lukewarm, I will spew thee out of my mouth. In thy present condition, thou art an offense to me. I can no longer own thee. It is the figure of an emetic which Christ there uses. The mingling together of what is hot and cold, thus producing a lukewarm drought, which is nauseating to the stomach. And that is exactly what is an inconsistent Christian to the Holy One. He who runs with the hare and hunts with the hounds is one inside the church and totally different one outside the church. He who seeks to mix godliness with worldliness, I will spew thee out of my mouth. 
instead of confessing his name before the Father and his holy angels. But observe what follows. Thus sayest I am rich, increased with goods, and have need of nothing. Exactly opposite is this estimation of his from Christ. No longer poor in spirit, Matthew 5.3, he declares himself to be rich. No longer coming to the throne of grace as a beggar to obtain help, he deems himself to be increased with goods. No longer sensible of his ignorance, weakness, emptiness, he feels himself to have need of nothing. That is what makes his cause so dangerous and desperate. He has no sense of personal need. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? As carnality and worldliness increase, so also does pride and complacency. And where they dominate, spiritual discernment becomes non-existent. Phariseeism and self-sufficiency are inseparable. It was to those who prayed, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and who asked Christ, are we blind also? To whom he said, you say we see, therefore your sin remaineth. John fifteen forty one. The Pharisee boasted, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possessed, in his own esteem and avowal that he was rich and increased with goods and had need of nothing. And for that very reason, he knew not that he was wretched and miserable and poor. That too is another form of the nauseating mixture was so abhorrent to Christ. Orthodox in doctrine, but corrupt in practice. One who is loud in claiming to be sound in the faith, but is tyrannical and bitter toward those who differ from him, who holds high doctrine, but cannot live in peace with his brethren, is as offensive to Christ as if he were thoroughly worldly. Can such a character as the one who just had been before us be a real, though a backslidden Christian? Frankly, we know not, for we are unable to say just how far a saint may fall into, into the mire and foul his garments before God recovers them by something, by answering him with terrible things in righteousness. Psalm 65.5 Before he made good, that awful threat and spewed up and spewed out the Laodicean professor, Christ made a final appeal to him. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyeslab, that thou mayest see. And though we do not feel capable of deciding whether or not the root of the matter really is in him, two things are plain to us. First, that if I have left my first love, it will not be long before my profession shall become dead. And unless it is revived, I shall soon be it be a Laodicean. Second, that while any person is a Laodicean state, is in a Laodicean state, he has no scriptural warrant to regard himself as a Christian, nor should others consider him as such. <clears throat> there are many professing Christians who have declined in their practice of piety to a considerable extent, yet who themselves, yet who comfort themselves with the idea that they will be brought to repentance before they die. But that is not only an unwarrantable comfort, but is presumably tempting God. As another has pointed out, whosoever plunges into the guilt of backsliding or continues easy in it under the idea of recovering by repentance may find himself mistaken. Both Peter and Judas went in, but only one of them came out. There is reason to fear that thousands of professors are now lifting up their eyes in torment, who in this world reckon themselves good men, who consider their sins as pardonable errors, and laid their accounts of being brought to repentance. But ere that they were aware, the bridegroom came and they were not ready to meet him. They of whom it is said they are slidden back by a perpetual backsliding. They hold fast a seat they refuse to return. Jeremiah eight five are the ones who drop back unto perdition. Hebrews ten thirty nine. And my reader, if you have left your first love, you have departed from the living God. And until you humbly and penitently return to Him, can have no guarantee that you will not be a perpetual backslider. We should carefully distinguish between the sin which indwells us and our falling into sin. The former is our depraved nature, 
which God holds us accountable to make no provision for, to resist its workings and refuse its solicitations. The latter is, when through lack of watching against indwelling corruption, sin breaks forth into open acts. It is injurious thing to fall into sin, whether secretly or openly, and sooner or later the effects will certainly be felt. But to continue therein is much more evil and dangerous. God has denounced a psalm threatening against those who persist in sin. He wounded the heads of these enemies, the hairy scalp of such a one as goeth on still in his trespasses. Psalm 68.21 For thou hast known the way of righteousness to pursue the course of sin is highly offensive to God. He has provided a remedy, Proverbs 28.13, but if instead of confessing and forsaking our sins, we sink into hardness of heart, neglect prayer, shun the company of the faithful, and seek to efface one sin by the committing of another, we are in imminent danger of being abandoned by God and are nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Hebrews 6.8 Let us return to the point where we should almost begin and ask again, what shall be the sequel to a decline? It should now be still more evident that a general answer cannot be returned. Not only does God exercise his sovereignty here, using his own good pleasure and not acting <clears throat> uniformly, but differences from the human side of things have also to be taken into account. Much will depend on whether it, it be the spiritual decline of a real Christian or simply religious decay of a mere professor. If the former, the sequel will vary according to whether the decline be internal only or accompanied or followed by falling into open sin. And the Puritans refer to open, scandalous sin. You know, somebody may have a problem with lust, but there's a difference between having a problem with lust in your mind and then going out and committing adultery and fornicating openly. There's a, there's a big difference. So, too, there is a doctrinal departure from God as well as a practical, as was the case with the Galatians. However, whatever be the type of case, this is certain. The one who lapses into a state of turpor needs to re respond to that call. Now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Let us, therefore, cast off the works of darkness, Romans 13, 11, and 12. Roman numeral 2. And, and, and this is a difficult topic because... We don't know the heart. We just don't know the heart. There have been people that were amazingly dedicated and very faithful outwardly who completely apostatized. People that I would never expect to apostatize and apostatize. And there are people I thought were kind of a basket case, were kind of a mess, and then in the end they turn out to be really solid Christians. You, we don't know the heart. That's why we go by the outward profession. And of course we have to follow Matthew 18 and people are given three distinct explicit opportunities to repent before they're disciplined. <clears throat> we have sought to make it clear the urgent necessity for recovery from a spiritual decline. We turn out to consider its desirability. Look at it first from the Godward side. It is not inexcusable that we should so evilly require the eternal lover of our souls. Is he who is rich for our own <coughs> for my sake become so poor that he has not where to lay his head in order that I, a spiritual pauper, might be made rich? What is due him from me? If you died the shameful death of the cross, that you might live, is not your life to be wholly devoted to him? If you be Christ, you are not your own, but bought with a price and therefore called upon to glorify him in your body and in your spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.20 If he can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, think you that he is unmoved if we, have our, if we leave our first love and divide our affections with his rivals? Do you suppose that a backslidden Christian affords him any pleasure? Surely you are aware of the fact that such a case brings no honor to him. 
Then let his love constrain you to return and reform your ways, so that you may again show forth his praises and give him delight. Consider your view, your case in view of other Christians. There is a bond uniting the saints which is closer than any natural tie. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and everyone members of another, Romans 12.5. And therefore those members should have the same care one for another, 1 Corinthians 12.25. So vital and intimate is that mystical union that if one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, verse 25. If one member of your physical body is affected, there is a reaction throughout your whole system. So it is with the mystical body. The health or sickness of your soul depends, uh, exerts a very real influence, whether for good or for evil, upon your brethren and sisters. For their sake, then, it is most desirable that if there be a spiritual decline, you should be restored. If you are not, your example will be a stumbling block to them. And if they have much association with you, their zeal will be damp dampened, and their spirits chilled. Surely it's not a matter of little concern whether you are a help or a hindrance to your fellow saints. Whoso shall offend one of these little ones that which believeth in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Matthew, Matthew 18.6 Contemplate your case in connection with your unsaved relatives and friends. Do you not know that one of the main obstacles in the way of many from giving a serious consideration to the gospel as the inconsistent lives of so many who profess to believe it. Years ago, we read of one who was concerned about the soul of his son, and on the eve of his departure for a foreign land, sought to press upon him the claims and excellency of Christ. He received this reply, Father, I am sorry, but I cannot hear what you say for seeing what you do. Is that the unuttered sentiment of your child? You may reply, I do not believe that anything in my conduct can have any influence on the external destiny of any soul, then you are woefully ignorant. First Peter 3.1, Wives be subject to your husbands, to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may be one without the word. They may be one without the word by the conversation or behavior of their wives. In saving sinners, God uses a variety of means. As in prejudicing sinners, Satan employs many agents. Is God or Satan most likely to use you? Most certainly the latter, if you are a back, in a backslidden state. Come lower still, let us appeal to your own interest. What have you gained by leaving your first love? Have you found the vanities of your, the vanities of this world more pleasing than the feast which the gospel sets before you? Does association with empty professors and the ungodly supply more satisfaction to the heart than fellowship of the Father and His Son? No, the very opposite. Rather, have you discovered that in forsaking the fountains of living waters, you have betaken yourself to broken cisterns which hold none? The joy of salvation you once had is departed. The peace of God which passes all understanding that formerly ruled your heart and mind through Jesus Christ does no longer apply. Today your case resembles that of the prodigal, feeding on husks in the far country, while the rich fare of the father's house is no longer partaken by you. An uneasy conscience, a restless spirit, a joyless heart is now your portion. Have you not reason to cry, Oh, that I were in my, uh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God preserved me, when his lamp shined on my head, as I was in the days of my youth, when the secret of God was upon my tabernacle, Job 29.2-4. Then whose fault is that, that you do not act again, that you do not again have that blessed experience? 
I mean, how terrible. I mean, to, to, to leave behind Christ in the, in the church, uh, to, to hang out with pagans who are absolute imbeciles, living to- lives of complete and total vanity. I mean, just total vanity. What worthlessness. Yes, from every viewpoint, it is most desirable that a Christian be recovered from his spiritual decline. Yet it is also important that he should not conclude that he has been recovered when such is not the case. Such a backslidden state is far from being agreeable. It is natural for one in it to want to be delivered from it. For that very reason, it is much to be feared that many have presumably grasped at the promise of forgiveness and said to their souls, peace, peace, when there is no peace. As there are many ways by which a convicted sinner seeks peace for his soul without finding it, so it is with a backslider. If he leans unto his own understanding, follows the devices of his own heart, or avails himself of the remedies advertised by religious quacks, he'll rather be worsened than improved. Unless he complies with the injunctions laid down in the word of truth for such cases and meets the requirements therein specified, there can be no real recovery for him. Alas, that this is so little realized today, and that so many who want, who went astray and think they are returned to the bishop of their souls are laboring under, under a delusion. Now, I came out of a, uh, a Baptist dispensationalist background when I was first a professing Christian. I was a charismatic dispensationalist and Baptist. And we were taught that people in the church who were fornicating and taking drugs and living like a total heathen, we were told, well, they're carnal Christians. They're saved. They're definitely saved, but they're just carnal Christians. And you haven't made Jesus Lord yet. And you can see how important theology is that we don't, we don't buy into these false theologies. If you're explicitly living in scandalous sin openly and repeatedly and habitually, then you have no reason to believe you're really a child of God. A true Christian who backslides, and most Christians will backslide sometime in their lives, are miserable. And they don't relish in it, and they don't go out and walk in the path of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers. If there is to be a real recovery, it is requisite that the right means be used and not that which is destructive of what is desired. When trees go older, begin to decay, it's useful to dig around them and manure them, for often that will cause them to flourish again and abound in fruit. But if instead of so doing, we removed them out of their soil, planted them in another, so far from their advantage, that they would wither and die. If there are many professing saints who suppose that the decay of their grace does not arise from themselves and the evil of their hearts, but rather attribute the same to uncongenial surroundings, unfavorable circumstances, their present location or station in life, and persuade themselves that as soon as they be freed from those, they will return to their first love again, and again delight themselves in spiritual things. But that is a false notion and spiritual delusion. Let men's circumstances and stations of life be what they will. The truth is that all their departures from God proceed from an evil heart of unbelief, as it is clear from Hebrews 3.13. Do not deceive and flatter yourself, then, with the idea that what is needed for a recovery from your spiritual decline is but a removal into more favorable and congenial circumstances. And let me pause for a minute. Think, example, for the, uh, the Middle Ages and uh, this idea of going into a monastery. And the idea of going into a monastery is you leave the world behind, and you'll be more holy because you're separate from the world physically. And there's a big wall around the monastery. And, of course, archaeology shows that uh, there were uh, nuns were having abortions. There were secret tunnels from the, the men's quarters to the female quarters, and they were fornicating like wild beasts. You can't remove the, the human heart is always there. 
the, the sinful tendency of the flesh, of the human heart, is always there. You can't flee behind walls and protect yourself from it. Monasteries were a massive failure. <clears throat> that is from want of watchfulness and because of the allowance of sin that all decays proceed. So return unto unsparing mortification of our lusts, and all the duties that lead thereunto must be the way of recovery. Yet at this point, too, we need to be much on our guard, lest we substitute for the denyings of self, which God has enjoined, those pharisaical and papistical inventions, which are of no value. Under the name and pretense of the, of the duties and means of mortification, men have devised and enjoined a number of works, ways, and duties, which God never appointed or approved. Nor will he accept, but will rather ask, Who hath required this at your hand? Isaiah 1.12 Self-imposed abstinences and austerities may have indeed a show of wisdom and will of worship and humility and neglect of the body. Ephesians, excuse me, Colossians 2.23 But they shall not profit the soul one iota, unless those who are weighted down with a sense of guilt conduct themselves by the lot of the gospel. They will think to placate the displeasure of God by betaking themselves to an unusual course of severities, which he has nowhere commanded. No abstinence from lawful things will deliver us from the consequences of having indulged in unlawful ones. And if you look at, uh, for example, there, there's festivals of Muslims in, in Iran where the men have a parade and they take off their shirts and they have these whips and they whip themselves and their backs are just drenching blood all over their clothes. They're covered with blood. And they think that's a means of sanctification. And being raised a Roman Catholic, we couldn't have meat on Fridays and that was supposed to sanctify us somehow. <clears throat> Again, the one who is exercised over and distressed by the spiritual decline is very liable to be wrongly counseled if he turns to his fellow Christians for advice and help. It is to be feared that in this day, uh, there are few, even among the people of God, who are qualified to be of real assistance to others. In most instances, their own spirituality is at such a low ebb that they are turned to for relief, they will only be found to be physicians of no value, Job 13.4. And if they consulted the average preacher or pastor, the result is not likely to prove much better. Of all Jehovah complained of the unfaithful priest of Israel. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah 6.14. And the issue there is, it's still common today. If you're too strict on certain things, whether doctrine or practice, uh, people leave. People just leave. And that's a sad fact. And that's why we have loose subscriptionism, and that's why we have all kinds of garbage in Presbyterian churches today. Those things are simply compromises with sin to keep people from leaving. When we should just be faithful, and if they leave, they leave. If we're small, we're small. I know that's sad, but that's just the way it should be. There are not a few such today. If one who is mourning over having left his first love asked him the way of return thereunto, instead of probing the conscience to ascertain the root of the hurt, they would endeavor to quiet his fears and soothe him. Instead of faithfully warning him of the seriousness of this case, they would say, there is nothing to be unduly exercised over. That perfection is not attainable in this life. And instead of naming the means God has appointed, we tell him to continue attending the services regularly and contributing liberally to the cause. And all will be well. Many a wound has been skinned over without being cured. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then went Ephraim to Assyrian, to the Assyrian and sent to King Jacob, Jerob. Yet could he not heal you nor cure you of your wound? Hosea 5.13 
The historical references to Israel and Judah when in great danger from the pressure of enemies, instead of humbling themselves before God and seeking his help, they betook themselves unto a neighboring nation and looked to it for protection, yet to no avail. But it is not a spiritual application to those who are conscious of their spiritual decline, but who had turned to the wrong quarter for deliverance. Backsliders are often aware of their wretched plight, but perceive not that sin is the cause of it. And God alone can heal their backsliding, Hosea 14.4. And his chastening rod falls upon them. So far from recognizing that, he, that it is his mighty hand correcting them, that it is his righteous hand dealing with them, they imagine it is only circumstances which are against them, and turn to the creature to extricate them, but to no good effect. Since there has been a departure from God, there must be a return to him. And in that way he has appointed, for there can be no recovery from the evil consequences of that departure. We now turn to consider the possibility of recovery. We'll just begin this and we'll stop. It may appear strange to some of our readers that we would deem it necessary to, to mention such a thing, still more that we should discuss it in some detail. If so, surely they, they forget that since Satan succeeds in persuading many a convicted sinner that his case is hopeless, that he has carried his rebellion against God to such length as to beyond the reach of mercy, driving him into a state of abject despair. It should not be thought strange that he will employ the same tactics with a backslidden saint, assuring him that he has sinned against such favors, privileges, and light that his case is now hopeless. Those who have read the history of John Bunyan and his case is far from being unique and learned of his lying so long in the slow of despond, when the devil made him believe he had committed the unpardonable sin, should not be surprised that he is still plying the same trade and persuading tone and another that he is so far departed from the Lord as recovery is impossible. We'll stop there. Yeah, Bunyan is outstanding in that. That was the big, that was the big issue for Bunyan. And that's one of the biggest problems that the Puritans had, because they were preaching holiness a lot, which is a good thing. But it got to the point where everybody, all the young people, none of them stayed in the church, because they all thought they couldn't be saved. They weren't saved. They weren't holy enough. <coughs> so you have this, this dialectical tension between justification by faith and the need for holiness. And these have to be held in a certain perspective and proper reality, or, or, the, or we'll all feel hopeless. For we, we have to fight the flesh every single day. And that's that's one of the troubling things. But we'll continue this forward. This is an extremely helpful book. And the wisdom of Pink is outstanding. He knows the Puritans probably better than anybody in the 20th century. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for our brother Pink. We thank you for this teaching. Help us to be holy. Help us to learn. Help us not to leave our first love. Help us to, if we've left it, to return there unto, using the proper means of grace, the proper methods. Help us to focus on Christ in your word, Lord, that we would be show our love and bend our hearts, Lord, that show we, we would not live any, do anything in our lives to hinder that fellowship and love. In Jesus' name, amen.